Next Sabbath, brethren, as we all know, we are going to come together, hopefully all over the world, and humble ourselves before God in a fast and ask Him for help, ask Him for guidance, ask Him for mercy, ask Him to draw us closer to Him, ask Him to help us learn every lesson that we need to learn, and as we do that, to grant us in the months to come greater faith and a greater impact because of the spiritual gifts that we pray that He will grant His church and His ministry. And I explained that in the letter to all of you. It's not some strange thing we're asking uh, at all. It's exactly what Jesus said should be done and exactly what He said would be done. And certainly those things ought to be done, especially as we approach the end of the age. And we do want to do that and do our part but we know that we are, do not have faith as much as we should. And Jesus said, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And I mentioned that, I think, in the letter and in, uh, certainly in the sermon, perhaps, last Sabbath. We do want the gifts of God. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, if you would, with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, just to see again God's description of some of these spiritual gifts. I won't dwell on this, but I want to at least introduce it and have you thinking about these things because it is very, very important. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. Paul writes, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. And, of course, he shows how they were just swept to Swan's side here and there by emotion in their previous Gentile religions. But he said in verse 5, The manifestation of the Spirit, that is, of God's Spirit, is given to each one for the profit of all. For to one is given the word of wisdom. And as I've explained, that word, word, in the Greek has a connotation, in this particular word that's used here, utterance of wisdom. In other words, God wants us to not only have wisdom, but to be able to utter wisdom to help others through the Spirit, the word or utterance of knowledge. He's giving gifts of the ministry, in a sense, gifts of evangelism here to another faith, because faith is necessary for all Christians, but these are gifts especially of evangelism, and this kind of faith, of course, leads to some of the other gifts he's talking about. But faith is a gift of God to another faith by the same Spirit, and obviously that can be given to anyone in God's church and will if you cry out for faith. God tells you that He's more willing to give us of His Spirit than we are to give our hungry children bread. And we should cry out for faith. Faith is a gift of God to another gifts of healings. And as I explained, I believe last time, it's plural here, not healing as the King James has it, but healings as the Greek scholars acknowledge. The plural is used here. Different manifestations of healing. You have a healing, maybe slowly and over a period of time, that is sometimes performed by God upon the anointing and so on of, a, of an elder in the church of God. And it doesn't mean an elder can't have an immediate healing, but that's the standard thing, to call for the elders, and sometimes a slower healing takes place and so on. But then sometimes God, through an elder or an evangelist or an apostle, or particularly uh, granted immediate healing, spectacular healing, dramatic healings, even Peter's shadow passing over people healed them. Here's the fellow that had just got through denying Christ three times and cursed and swore just a few months apparently before that. When you look at the context of the, of the uh, timing here, it wasn't years apparently, but just a matter of months or a year or two at the most. And he turns right around and his shadow passing over people healed them. 
Now, part of it, as we know, as I pointed out, is God's timing. Peter wasn't suddenly perfect, but he did have God's Spirit in him, whereas before it had just been with him before the day of Pentecost came. And now with the Spirit of God in him and being used far more powerfully, it was God's time to put his stamp of approval on this New Testament church. These Jews were sincere people. They were out, you know, at the beginning of the Christianities, you know, sometimes killing the Christians, which the Apostle Paul did himself, but did it in all sincerity. He was not hypocrite. He meant it. He thought they were damnable. They had to be wiped off the earth. They were heretics against the God of Israel. And many of the other Jews were sincere. They had to have a powerful validation that what Christ and then later Peter and James and John and the early apostles taught was, in fact, a new covenant, a valid new covenant, a valid new and different way to approach God. Certainly built solidly on the old way, but nevertheless added things came along with the Holy Spirit in them. They had to have that proof. Otherwise, God wouldn't have been fair, you know, to take Mount Sinai and shake it and all the miracles that were performed and all the other things that happened in giving the old covenant and then just have some guys get up and say, now we're teaching you something different and you just believe our word. No, it took some validation from God. They needed that validation. They needed the accompanying signs, as they are called, in Mark, the 16th chapter. And God gave those signs during the early church. We don't get those signs to the same degree now and haven't had them to the same degree at all in modern churchianity or even in God's church in modern times because we have the Bible, we have the record, we have prophecy being fulfilled just point after point after point, which they did not have back then, by the way, except for the coming of Christ and those miracles. We have those things we can see and understand and look to, which they did not. And we're not introducing a whole new way of life. We're just building upon what was given. Nevertheless, in the early days of Mr. Herbert Armstrong, as I pointed out, Mr. Herbert Armstrong devoted himself to being a pastor. And as a pastor, and certainly he was an apostle even then, I'm sure, but he constantly studied and prayed and interacted with the brethren. And you read that in his autobiography. And he just exuded faith and a great deal of zeal uh, when I first met him and came to college. And the older brethren talked about that, how they used to have long sermons and long Bible studies with Mr. Armstrong. And he talked, and he talked about these dear country folk, poor people, they'd stay up late at night talking about the Bible. And there was just a feeling of love and joy in the room when he'd do that up in Oregon. But as the work moved down to Hollywood and Pasadena and the business part got busier and busier, he said, fellows, I have sometimes gotten away and I want all of you not to make the mistake. It's so easy for us to get so involved in the administrative part of the work that we don't have that profound sense of contact with God on a personal basis. We're not personally drinking into the Bible. We're not personally praying as much as we should. We're just administering this and that. And I've tried to warn our ministry that many times. And I'm warning myself, of course, when I do that to them because I'm in the same, I can fall in the same pit very, very easily. In fact, I can fall in that pit easier than anyone because maybe I have more things to watch, having to watch all the facets of God's work. It's so easy, you know, to get involved. We'll do this and do that. And as Harry Truman said, the buck stops here. And I can be overwhelmed with God to call someone and check up on that and remember to do that, but I don't take time for personal study and prayer as much as I should, unless I make myself do that. And that's so important. 
But at any rate, all of you have to do the same thing. But as the work grew, it grew in numbers, it grew in money, it grew in power in the overall sense of using the technological media of radio and television and the printing press and so on. But the personal miracles did not occur as frequently or as dramatically as they did during the early days. And some of you could doubt that, and I understand that. I can't prove it to you except to say that I'm from Missouri, <laughs> and when I first came to college, I went around asking, did this happen? And did that happen? And I, I was more crass. Uh, Mrs. Aparty may remember some of my crass ways. I'm still kind of crass. <laughs> but anyway, back then, kind of pushy. And I remember Mrs. Olson and uh, the old lady that counted the money. Uh, when we, I first came to college and I went and talked to her. I should have known that she would tell Mr. Armstrong, but I said, well, now this is where the money and how do you get it and how, who brings it here and then who brings it to the bank and does Mr. Armstrong get it? And I asked all kinds of questions like that. Well, years later, Mr. Armstrong told me kind of laughingly, he said, Rod, he said, when you first came, I heard about you going all over the campus and checking up on me. <laughs> and he laughed. He said, I didn't mind. I have nothing to hide. And he didn't. But I also asked about the positive things of Mr. and Mrs. Starkey. She was the first paid employee of the Radio Church of God, as we were called then, Mrs. Helen Starkey and her husband. And then I got to know Arch Shippert and Chloe Shippert. And they were very early members coming into the church a little bit later. They came in 1936, as I remember, and had known Mr. Armstrong since those days, very intimately up in Oregon when things were very, very small. And Mr. Armstrong was, as I would say, is, he was a very open person. And I don't want to go into how open he was, but it was almost embarrassing sometimes if he, you know, if his wife didn't kiss him that morning, he'd tell you about it. If you're one of his uh, close uh, students and sort of counselors, and he'd tell you all kinds of things about his digestive habits and problems he had and just everything. And it's very open, just like we're all in the family, you know. Sometimes in the early headquarters church, he said, well, I want to just tell you, brethren, this thing is just between us here. And he did that a few times in the Shakespeare Club. And I think even once or twice, maybe Mr. Davis will remember, Mr. Pardon, it seemed like he did it once or twice even in the, in the auditorium in the house of God. Let's just keep this between us. And we'd all look, yeah, sure, just between us, 1,200 people, you know, just, everybody rushes for the nearest fall. Oh, did you hear about this? Mr. Armstrong just said this or that's going to happen or whatever. And he couldn't fully grasp uh, the, how quick people were to spread things, but that happened. But nevertheless, I tried to check up on his healings, and many people told me those things happened. I, gave, I asked specific things, and God did bless and bless and bless in the early days of the work of God, and that was wonderful. The gifts of healings by the same Spirit, to another the work in miracles, plural, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to grasp, is it the Spirit of God, or is it the demon in, in a person, or just the Spirit in man, just a normal carnal person, but not demon-possessed? You have to have a discerning of spirits sometimes. I know one of our leading ministers said years ago, he said, if it isn't quite human, you know, just putting it that way, if you're sure it isn't quite human, then it's a demon, <laughs> And that was helpful to me. Sometimes you, you're not sure it's a demon, and yet you sense it's not quite human, and you certainly know it's, you know, it's not the Spirit of God. And so it usually turns out if you have proper discernment, even of that aspect of it, then it is, in fact, a demon. 
but you have to have help from God. To another, different kinds of tongues or languages to another interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things. God's Holy Spirit is there. And brethren, we're God's church today to have God's Spirit. We should have God's Spirit. We should have and reflect more and more of these things because we are up, uh, up toward the end of an age here and we're living in a terribly technological, mechanical world. I've explained that. All of us have explained that many times. We know that. We're surrounded by the telephones and telegraphs and televisions and it blurs our minds. Sometimes the most faithful people, the most sensible people in modern times are farmers. You know, they know what reality is. A lot of city kids, you know, to them, they're not even sure if, where milk comes from. They, they, they're told that milk comes out of, of a, 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 the udder of a cow. And I've heard literally people describe how young kids, city kids, they, wow, I don't want any of that. <laughs> they see a cow, and they even go to a farmer and see this, you know, farmer milking the cow and squirting out. They can't grasp what reality is all about. A farmer out there has to trust God to give the right weather. A farmer has to ask God for help with this and that and something else. It helps him get back to the fundamentals a lot more than a city person. But the trouble is, of course, the modern society under the influence of Satan the devil has followed the farmers even out to their farm and the ranchers to their farmers and rancher in a remarkable way. And now instead of having to go in town to see a movie on Saturday, as I used to do, I would go downtown but not in town when I worked on the farm, a couple of different summers, though, then you had to go into town. You don't have to know anything. You just walk in your living room, punch a button, and there's the world. You see fornication, adultery, murder, perversion, God's name being taken in vain, everything. Bang! Right in your living room. Satan the devil presents the world in technicolor and, and, and you know, uh, digital sound. Isn't that wonderful? That didn't used to happen. He's got you wherever you go unless you go out on a hike and don't even take a radio and don't even take your uh, cell phone, which may be a good, good thing to do once in a while. Just get clear away where God is and all this other stuff isn't. But anyway, to another different kinds of tongues, but one spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, you know, all of us have hands and feet and fingers and, and uh, ears and eyes, but they're all part of our body. So also is Christ. Each one of us performs different aspects of the work of God. And Christ needs our body collectively to do the work. Each one of us contributes. I'm a very limited person in many ways. I'm not brilliant. I certainly don't even know how to type properly. I did you know how to type. My wife has seen me, and I've typed a number of things, maybe a few score pages or hundred pages in my life, but certainly probably not even hundred, just several score. I just don't like to type, and I'm very awkward in my uh, coordination. I've always been awkward that way. I'm a messy eater and a messy, even buttoning my shirt, anything like that somehow doesn't work right. So I had a hard time becoming a good typist. Now, Monica's a very good typist, so I scribble it out on the yellow pad, the yellow legal pad, and then I dictate it to her, and if she can hear it right and make it out right, which is sometimes hard too, I know, <laughs> well, she types it very, very well. So the message has come out. 
and then uh, Mr. Ames and Mr. Bomer and, and uh, Mrs. Prejean and the others in editorial help edit it and put it together and lay it out and then you get a nice looking article because the whole team has been working together. Same thing on television. A whole team is working together in each one of these areas. And Christ uses all of us, of course, to do a different part of the work and to be His body, the group, the spiritual organism, which is the church of God that He's working through today. So we want to have these gifts. Faith is a gift of God's Spirit. Turn back to Hebrews chapter 10, if you would, brethren, at this time. Hebrews chapter 10. I get a little bit of this tea here. Someone else in the body provides me with this good tea, and I appreciate it. I want to begin in verse 35, Hebrews 10:35. He's writing to the pioneer Christians, the early Christian church at Jerusalem or in Israel, at least, the Hebrew Christians. Most of them have been around a while. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. Don't give up, folks, he says. You've worked long and hard. God will reward you for that if you just hang in there. And I say the same thing to you. For you have need of endurance, so that after you've done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come. Yes, he is going to come. Christ is coming and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. My subject today, I preached on living by faith, but my subject today, if you want to know, is stages of faith. I'm not going to approach it in exactly the same way I have before, but I want to talk about faith because we're going to have to have faith as we fast and pray before God next Sabbath. And I pray with all my heart, and I hope you will too, brethren, please join me the next Sabbath. is not just a shotgun thing. We don't just have one thing and that's it. We've got to keep on with this. Next Sabbath, I hope, can mark a turning point in the living church of God and that all of us will begin regularly beseeching God to draw us truly closer to Him, help us truly walk by faith, help us truly have the gifts of the Spirit more than we have ever had to have an impact on this world, this very confused world. Because just as they needed those gifts at the beginning of the Christian church, at the end of the Christian church, the world is filled with all kinds of purported Christianity. Hundreds of churches calling themselves Christian. And even the church of God is split up in over 300 different groups, which is a shame and, a, and an absolute abomination. I'm sure that that has occurred. Confusing. God is not the author of confusion. He's allowed it to happen. But God wants us to think through this thing and to live by faith. And people out there mixed up in little groups that are not willing to do anything. They're not doing the work. They're not learning the government of God. They're not learning the lesson God wants them to learn at all. But God has got to show them. And just our arguing won't do it. But if God gives us the accompanying signs, then the sincere Baptists, Methodists, and even Pentecostal people that are sort of seeking for true, the true God and want to obey God, want to learn about God, they can figure it out. And the people in the little fringe groups that are not doing anything and are confused and just out there because they don't know what to do, they can begin to realize that, yes, there needs to be an organized church. There needs to be. 
God is not the author of confusion. There needs to be a way where God's people can and should work together to do the work of God. There needs to be a way whereby we can fulfill 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where we can judge between brethren and problems. Whereas today, if some brother comes and we counsel them and say, you've got this problem, say, okay, I'm out of here. I'll go right down the street somewhere else. Is that God's way? Then used to be that way. There used to be basically two choices. You were either in what we came to see was the Philadelphia era of God's church or you went into the Sardis era. You went to the Seventh-day Church of God, which did not believe in doing the work, did not believe in, in church eras, did not believe in, in uh, uh, the identity of our nations, did not understand prophecy, did not understand the holy days and lots of other things. They did not and still don't understand because they don't want to. Now, hundreds of those people have come with us over the years. I mean hundreds, maybe thousands as far as that's concerned. I know a lot of them personally. Those who were sincere and zealous did not understand. They, they understood Mr. Armstrong and that God was working through him, and they came out. But the others are still there, and God says, You are dead, and please strengthen the things which are dying that are about to die. Wow, what a, what a commendation. <laughs> the little things that are still alive are about to die. It was that church is so weak. So we had a choice, a very clear choice back there. Today, it's far more confusing. Where is God working? And we pray that God will make that more clear. So we are to ask for faith. We've got to live by faith. He says, you have need of endurance so that after you've done the will of God, you may receive the promise for yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. We've got to have faith, brethren. You live by that faith. If anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. How do you live by faith? Well, frankly, I'm going to go into that somewhat, but I've done that in past sermons. This is not my main thrust today. But one thing I want to plant in your mind as we go through, you've got to learn to live by faith in every single area of your life. Do I say that because I'm doing that perfectly? No. No, I'm not. I'm not perfect yet. But I understand that, and I hope you understand that is the truth. You've got to live by God's principles and God's laws, sometimes they're just principles, in the area of health. You've got to believe not just in the clean and unclean meats, but you've got to come to have the mind of God that God created us. He said everything He created was good, and that He gave us good things, and that we should eat those good things. As Mr. Armstrong used to say, you should eat fresh food and fruits and vegetables while they're fresh. Eat food that will spoil before it spoils, not food that's been, you know, pulverized and, and filled with all kinds of preservatives and one thing and the other, which hurts your body and has side effects. Learn that principle. I notice month after month over the last several years, almost every month or two I'll see just accidentally. I don't tear them all out. I think most people understand that. But there are articles about breastfeeding. And the doctors used to be way down on breastfeeding. And when I was growing up, my mother taught me about it. She breastfed me for just a little bit. But Dr. Moody thought, well, you ought to get them off after three or four months. So she quit right away, I think after about two and a half or three months. And I know now I would have been better off if I had the opportunity to breastfeed a lot longer. 
And that most of the people who really look into it with an open mind find that, yes, breast milk is so much more nutritious, so much more balanced, so much more easily digested by the baby than all this artificial stuff. There's no comparison. And you'd be much better off learning, yes, God made the body properly. Simple, isn't it? But a lot of people can't figure out. They get caught up in this mechanized technological society of just simple things. Simple things they can't figure out. Live by faith that God is real, that God is there, that God permeates every phase of your life. Live by God's laws in, you know, your marriage. Someone does something wrong, your mate, your husband, your wife, you say, I'm out of here. What does God say? No, you forgive again and again and again. And he shows you you forgive your brother 70 times 7. He gives you certain examples. If your mate commits pornea, repeated adultery, repeated adultery, you cut them away for that. But little things you've got to learn to forgive. How do you do that? Because you believe in God. You believe that marriage is a type of the relationship between Jesus Christ and the church. You learn to believe that. You learn to know that that will work. You learn that God will teach you lessons through marriage you might not learn any other way. And if you have at all a decent marriage, it's a real marriage, then you stay there. You don't just run off at the first opportunity. I'm not condemning some of you have divorced. Some have divorced for perhaps very good reason, besides just the adultery thing. But on the other hand, uh, you better be very sure. You know that's a basic law, but sometimes we don't have faith that that law absolutely works. It's a living, moving law, like the law of gravity. There's a great creator that made us that way, and we're better off to find the right mate carefully, thoughtfully, slowly, in the first place, and then stay right there until death does us part, unless there's a huge reason to separate. Because those separations, as you know, for the people and for their children and for all the others bring great suffering, as most people know today. They're beginning to find out the, the side effects, as you might call it, the divorce. So you learn that in every area. I'm just covering a couple. I could cover a couple hundred, and I mean that. Just area after area after area of your life, your finances, your way you use your time. Some people get on me because I'm very time conscious, but I read that... Uh, You're to redeem the time. And I read that Jesus obviously did do that. You seek first the kingdom of God. And you better do that in the way you use your time. And I read in several books on management that the top leaders in industry and business are very, very time-conscious individuals. They don't let their time just go by. Did I always do that perfectly? No. I didn't understand that fully. But by the time I was in junior high and high school, I began to think that way. And, I, and I'm not perfectly, but I began to read things and began to have a purpose in life a little bit. And I thought, how come Ashby and Monty and Ducky are just here smoking a cigarette with one hand and playing the pinball machine? The little lights go on and bing, 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 bing. And the time goes, ha, ha, and bing, bing, bing. And I thought, what are they getting out of this? They're not getting any exercise. They're not learning anything. They're wasting time, and beside that, they're smoking, and I knew even then smoking was not good, although I didn't realize how bad it was until the mid-50s it began to come out, how it actually damaged you terribly and shortened your breath. But I could see it didn't work out too well. And so I realized it was good to use your time for better than something like that. Try to learn something. Try to benefit your body, mind, personality, character, 
your financial health, if you want to look at it that way too, some kind of health in your, in your being, by the way you use your time. Don't kill time. Glorify God in your body. Glorify God in your life. And what is your life? 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000, 5,000, five seconds of your life has ticked by. Think about it. Your life is composed of time. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. So many ways we've got to learn to live by faith in every aspect of our lives. Very important. Go on now with chapter 11 here of Hebrews. Now, faith is the substance of all of things hoped for. You see, it's a kind of a, a basic thing that you sense is there. The evidence of things not seen. It is your evidence goes beyond substance. It's a kind of evidence. If you believe there is a great God, and you've proved that to yourself enough, you're willing to lay down your life for it, to live by it, if that's your ultimate reality, and if you believe that this book, the Bible, is the revelation, the mind of that God in print, then if God says something, that is like your check. You know, if I pull out a piece of paper, you know, I got my paycheck, I've been paid. Oh, really? Is this piece of paper uh, perfect? Well, what, you know, what does they say? The two greatest lies in the United States. The check is in the mail. <laughs> That's number one. And I'm, I'm, I'm here. I work for the government. I'm here to help you. Oh, <laughs> the two big lies. They're there to joke, of course. Sometimes they are there to help you. And usually the check is in the mail. But, you know, these are just whatever. You don't know that. You don't know that check is a good check and you don't know it's in the mail. So don't say I've been paid until you see it, the receipt in your bank account. And then you're, you're pretty sure it's paid unless the bank goes broke and then you don't have any real gold or anything that is real money. You have paper money even then, but that's another subject, <laughs> another subject. All right. But you have faith in that. I'm paid a piece of paper. Can you eat that paper? No. But if it's good, you can buy something, buy some food or something with it. So you hope it's good. You're very confident of that. But you may not be near as confident of this paper, which we call the Word of God, the Bible. You've got to have that confidence. I have been paid. God says so, and it will happen. That's faith. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God. We weren't there, as I've told you, brethren, and I used to save clippings on this. I think I lost them in the move back here or some other move, but we had clippings uh, out of the various papers, the Los Angeles Times and the Pasadena Star News and Time Magazine and elsewhere. The great scientist, Nobel Prize winning scientist says the earth was created, you know, one million years ago. And others will say two million, four million, nine million, twelve billion, sixteen billion. 24 billion years ago, I think, is the biggest figure I've heard. They toss around billions of, 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 of years like ping-pong balls. Why? Because they don't know. Mr. Sid Hegbold taught science in Ambassador College and had a degree in that field and was not one of the world's greatest science, but he was amused by all this stuff. Some people would say, some of the young, oh, well, radiocarbon dating. Some of the kids would play, oh, you know, that proves everything. But, of course, he said, listen, John or Jack, whoever came up with this, read the whole story and you'll find that radiocarbon dating is only valid in a controlled atmosphere. 
if there's no great upheaval and if all the other factors are constant, yes, radiocarbon dating, they think, will prove exactly how old something is. But if there has been a great war between uh, God's angels and Satan's angels and everything is all upset, if there has been a great flood, the flood of Noah, and the whole earth is in turmoil, if there have been other things like that, then radiocarbon dating, throw it out the window. You can't know. And they do not know. They do not know. We know it probably was billions of years ago, but we know and know that we know if we believe God that it was done by God. He said so, and we can see all the other proofs of that God. That's the key. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. He believed when God said, I want blood, pointing to Christ from the very beginning. You heard us preach on that. By faith, Enoch, verse 5, was translated that he did not see death. See, by faith, he trusted in God and laid his life on the line. And he preached strongly, and so God probably took him away so they didn't know where he was buried, lest they kill him or butcher his body or something like that. Verse 6, But without faith it is impossible to please God, for he who comes to God must believe that he is. Yes, you've got to believe that God is. That is the basis of faith. You've got to believe in a real God. That has to become your ultimate reality, a real God. And that that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. You should believe that also, that God then will reward those who diligently seek Him, not half-heartedly seek Him, diligently seek Him. And that's what God wants us to do, obviously. So all this is involved in real faith. Now, brethren, there are stages of faith. One stage we might call is our first reality wherein we have faith is our family, our immediate family or care provider or foster, father, mother, whatever. other words, as a little child grows up, daddy says, mother says, and the little child, you know, sincerely believes that in most cases. And that's good. They should because the normal, if they're not perverted, the daddy, father, caregiver is trying to help them and help them not to run out in the street and kill themselves and tell them to keep their hand away from the hot stove. Sometimes the little boys especially are more experimental, so they'll put their hand on the stove to find out and get a horrible burn anyhow and so on. But normally a little child responds to his parents. That is first reality. That's the first authority figure. He responds to them. Daddy and mother become God. I remember one of my little boys told me one time, he said, Daddy, is God as big as you? You know, and I said, uh, I can't remember honestly which one it was. It was David or Mike or someone. Anyway, I said, no, honey, uh, God is much bigger than me if he wants to be, a million times bigger, but he's spirit and so on. But to me, I mean, to him, you see, I was like God because I was daddy and I was so much bigger and I was the head of the family and uh, he looked up to me and his mother and so on. And that's the way a little child is. So they have faith in that, in that way at that time. The second uh, stage of faith is normally you begin to have the authority figure become the church, the pastor, religious teachers. In my uh, case growing up, it included my parents, but even more than that, my grandmother. I had this one grandmother that kept on living. All the others died when I was, by the time I was nine years old, all had died except one, Grandmother Meredith and Aunt Elizabeth, 
Hundreds of people called her and came to her funeral. She was a very giving person, just a wonderful old Methodist lady, very sincere and very zealous in her religion as far as she understood. She didn't understand a lot but uh, as far as the full truth, but she did understand there's a real God and all blessings come from God and was very sincere and a very wonderful, loving person. So I learned certain things from her, and I'm glad that I did. Because she was sincere, she didn't teach me a lot of false doctrine. I just assumed Christmas and Easter and Sunday and all that. I'd already learned that. But Grandmother taught me about prayer, and she taught me about studying the Bible, which she did every day, and talked about the Bible sometimes. And my uncle and father, years later, said that their mother, they said, Mama used to hear her pray early in the morning. Once in a while, they'd get up as a little boy to go to the bathroom, and here's their mother just praying and sometimes fervently talking aloud, God please let my sons or one of my sons be a minister. And she prayed that over and over and prayed I was her only grandson. And they heard her pray that I would be a minister. She had no other grandsons. So God heard her prayer. Maybe it wasn't a miracle, but it worked out that her one of her two sons, my uncle, Dr. C. Paul Meredith, who wrote the old correspondence course, did become a minister. And I later became a minister. She was very sincere. But we learned. We had our Methodist minister, Dr. Ridpath, so I learned about some aspects of faith from him and the approach to God. He became a figure, uh, you know, to teach and so on. And others, Dr. Ross, I think, was my Sunday school teacher I learned the most from. He was a businessman, an insurance agent, and was thoughtful. And he taught me that uh, boxing was good, though. <laughs> the, the, uh, what was the, gentle, the gentlemanly art of self-defense? Some of the younger people never heard that. That's what they used to call boxing, the gentlemanly art of self-defense. Well, of course, when you get into the real boxing and the golden gloves or professional, it's not gentlemanly and it's not self-defense. You get in there, you know he's going to knock your head off or you're going to knock his head off. You know, <laughs> That's the way it is. Sorry about that. But that's what they used to call it and so on. But anyway, Al Ross was a nice man and, and gave his principles of masculinity. He was a masculine Sunday school teacher and so on. And so then the third stage of faith is where you enlarge your authority figures. Then the third stage become a larger uh, group of believers. That is, you will probably read helpful articles in the Reader's Digest that give you concepts of faith. Maybe you'll read uh, articles about, uh, about God or books about God and other ministers and other churches and concepts about good and God and what's right and what's wrong. Various religious things. It expands outside your father and mother, outside your own church and pastor, outside your immediate sphere of influence. And though that becomes then the larger authority. And you then, of course, take bits and pieces from that as you grow up. Think about it. We've got to understand, brethren, a lot of our pe uh, people live in India. 1.1 billion people, I think it is now, and 1.3 billion live in China. Are they carnal? Yes. Are they sincere? Probably most of them are sincere. If you grew up in India and you were talking about the wonderful gods of our parents, you know, Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva, and Brahma is the wonderful creator god, and Vishnu is uh, the protector, preserver, I think it is, and Shiva is the destroyer, and they have these, and you're taught about this, and you believe it as you grew up as a little kid, 
and you, you, or you sat under the idol of big fat Buddha and the wonderful Buddha gives us wisdom and children, let's pray and let's meditate like Buddha. Oh yeah, mommy. Yes, daddy. And then your larger sphere tells you the same thing. And then the whole society does that in India, perhaps one of those gods. And you get in that, that, that's what you believe. If you'd been over there, if I'd been over there, perhaps we would have believed that. So then the fourth stage is when you begin to challenge when you begin to evaluate, when you begin to deeply reflect upon what is right and what is real, what can be proved, and what you're going to really carry through when hard times come, then you try in your own mind to get to the ultimate reality. Now, most men and women today don't get to that fourth stage, or they partially get to that fourth stage from all I've read, even in outside religious literature. But some get to that stage, but being blinded, they don't go very far because God has not opened their minds. But most of you have come to that fourth stage. Some of you have not. Some of our young people grew up in the church and just take it for granted, and then they get disillusioned later on when they find that, well, you know, one of the leaders made a mistake. And we had one of our leaders back years ago made some terrible mistakes. And so that disillusioned a lot of people. And so they left, well, so-and-so made some terrible mistakes. Or they'll find out too much money was spent on this. Oh, well, that's too bad. And the world even challenged Mr. Armstrong and, and Stan Rader on uh, uh, misusing the money. And they had a state break-in, you know, and, and the armed guard was there. I went to my office and there was this guy carrying a gun. And it was kind of a scary time there in the auditorium, in the, uh, in, the, in the administration building during the receivership, as we called it, and all this kind of thing. And so they think, oh, my, there's some bad stuff here. And if you're not sure of what you believe, that can throw you because you haven't really gone back and proved and reproved what you believe and why you believe it and tested it and tested it and retested it. So I challenge each one of you to do that. And I challenge each one of you young people, you young people in Australia, out in Perth, and over in Auckland, and over in, uh, in Johannesburg, and wherever I've been, we have young people sitting in the churches around the world. And any of you other brethren that are new or taking things for granted, don't be afraid to prove the truth. I ask you to do it. Honestly, we're not afraid of your doing it. If you do it honestly and sincerely, and non-prejudicially, where you're not just looking for a way out. Of course, you can always find a way out of anywhere. <laughs> and if you do it thoroughly, you can find then that you can prove the truth backwards, forwards, and sideways. Once you prove that there is a real God, a real spirit personality, and that this book is the inspired revelation from God, and you believe, really believe that, and prove those two things, then all the rest is fairly simple if your mind is truly open and if you're willing to really study. Not just carelessly read, but study. Don't be afraid to bring up the arguments. Don't be afraid to bring up the so-called uh, uh, contradictory scriptures or the difficult scriptures or stuff like that that bothers you. We can answer every one. If we can't answer them immediately, we'll answer them later. And not some funny stuff. We do know the real answers. You know that, most of you around the church. You ask the average Protestant minister, Catholic priest in the world today, well, what about the billions of people over in India and China? 
And Indonesia, where they have 240 billion, a million people, I mean, and they're essentially uh, Muslim there. About half the world's population, let's say, in those three areas. If you throw in Japan, I haven't added it all up perfectly here, but at any rate, you've got 2.3 2 and 1.1, and that's 3.4 and another uh, quarter billion. Anyway, with a little extra, yeah, it's almost two-thirds of the population of the world you're getting up to pretty quickly there. But anyhow, uh, you're getting up, uh, uh, you know, over that if you throw in Japan and one or two other nations like that. And they don't believe, most of them, in any kind of Christianity. And what's going to happen to all these people? Nice people over there if you go there. Sincere people. So I say, if you're going up there, you'd believe what they believe. What do you think, priest so-and-so? What do you think, preacher so-and-so? Well, uh, and, you know, and the him and haw are maybe... Well, you know, God is God is love, and He understands, and if everybody just goes by His own lights, and, and God will let Him come up. There are different ways to eternal life. Oh, is that so? Jesus said, Peter said, only the name of Jesus Christ is the only name given under heaven whereby men must be saved. Oh, what do you do with that? What do you do with all these other scriptures? For Jesus said, you know, in John 10, if anyone comes up any other way, I am the way. If anyone comes up any other way, he's a thief and a robber. That sounds terribly arrogant. Either Jesus Christ was terribly arrogant or else he was what he said he was. And he said he was the Son of God. He said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Was he? I believe he was. And I know he was. And I hope most of you can come to know that. But you've got to prove those things to live by faith and to have real faith that's not going to be shaken. Some of you older brethren may say, well, you know, you don't want to put doubts in kids' minds. No, I'm, I'm tired of having people fall away later. I taught generation after generation or year after year, I should say, I mean, of Ambassador College. And I taught more Ambassador College Bible classes than anyone else. I'm not bragging. It's just a fact. I could go through the years. I was not their only teacher. Mr. Armstrong and Ted and Herman Hay and Al Fortune and others did as well. But I taught a lot of them. And so many of them fell away. And that hurts. Why? They had never thoroughly proved and grounded themselves in their faith. Or they would not have been shaken so easily. And that's a terrible thing. So I challenge every one of you to go to this fourth stage. To where you review, you evaluate... You meditate on and you prove and you reprove that there is a real personal living God and that this Bible is the revelation from that God and that God says what He means and means what He says. And when Jesus said, if you'd enter into life, keep the commandments and you believe it. And all these other statements, and they bring up their trick arguments, but as you know, if you have been around at all, we can certainly answer those very, very clearly, very clearly. And read the booklet if you doubt that any of you are restoring apostolic Christianity. That booklet kind of covers that facet of things pretty thoroughly. So you've got to do that to, to get to this fourth stage of internalizing that faith. Then you will really prove the existence of God, of Christ, of the Bible, and ultimately the real authority that uh, you're going to base your living faith upon. And you've got to do that. And that is very, very important because real faith, as I've said, must permeate everything you think and say and do. You ought to date a girl by faith. 
You ought to court by faith. You ought to marry by faith. I don't have time to explain all that, but you know, there are ways you ought not just be dating promiscuously out in the world. You ought to date someone that is converted or as far along toward it as you are. And as you date in court, you ought not be fornicating and getting along somewhere where you'll have temptation. You ought to do it God's way. God's way permeates everything you think and say and do. Doesn't make any difference. And if you do it God's way, you'll be blessed. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians 3, brethren. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 3 at this point. And uh, I want to uh, begin reading in verse 1 here. Paul writes to a church of God. They were God's church. He says, And I, brethren, to the Corinthians, could not speak to you as to spiritual, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. Many of our brethren are carnal in the living church of God. We know that by their attitudes, by some of the people that are putting others down all the time, wrongly evaluating people, fussing at each other, having coffee pot wars, as we heard about a few years ago, and all kinds of funny stuff. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you are not able to receive it. And even now you're still not able, for you are still carnal, he told the church of God at Corinth. You're still carnal, for where there, there is envy, strife, divisions among you are you not carnal and behaving like men and so they were the church of god but they didn't have real faith that christ was in charge or they wouldn't have been doing that one of you says i'm a paul another of apollos are you not carnal well i prefer mr so-and-so to so-and-so well you might in a certain sense of their you might like one preacher but they were kind of really starting a divisive spirit there some people prefer Mr. Ames' telecast to mine. Some people prefer Mr. O'Gwen's sermons to either one of us because he's a very interesting, powerful preacher in church. And that doesn't bother me. I guess I'm getting old enough and to the end of my life, I'm really glad. I say, wow, I'm glad we've got some younger guys coming along. We need them. And we need them badly. <laughs> Godspeed. May there be more. But others have a spirit of competition sometimes. Who then is Paul, Apollos, but ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. In other words, all along in these kind of things he's talking about here, what do we need to do? We've got to have faith that Jesus Christ is alive, and faith in the Bible, which says this, and that Christ is the head of the church, and that Christ will guide this man to do this and that man to do that, and each man is not exactly the same. Mr. Armstrong used to say that the three campuses of Ambassador College mutually excelled. And they did. You had the more sculptured beauty of Pasadena with the uh, uh, type of, uh, I don't know what it's called sculptured beauty, but bigger buildings and more of them and one thing and the other and the house of God. And they had, that was superior in those ways. Then you had the sort of open-range East Texas beauty of Big Sandy, which was really unusual in the autumn and especially in the springtime. Very beautiful in its own ways. And then you had the more sculptured English-type garden beauty of uh, Bricket Wood, which was wonderful in its own way and different from the other two, certainly. And I spent time on all three campuses. And they did mutually excel and in certain ways, no question about it. So we've got to understand that and know that Christ is using different ones in different ways, but say, well, that just reflects back on Christ and it's all going to work for good. 
Turn to James chapter 1. James chapter 1 and beginning verse 2. James writes, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. You see, you've got to be sure that you go through trials in a patient way. Don't give up when you fall into various trials. We have had a number of trials in the living church of God. We had trials in the global when we started. And then this split, certainly, that hurt us and slowed us down. Recently, we've had a terrible trial with the death of Mr. Carl McNair. And that was a trial. And I still think once in a while I don't fully understand that. And I don't. I can sort of partially think of a reason or not to, but I'm not sure and had not even remotely sure. When my wife, Margie, died back in 1976, I couldn't understand that. And it hurt me, but I had to go back and think, why am I here? And just know that God would reveal it in due time. When Dick Armstrong died back in 1958, I did not understand. Years later, I came to gradually understand a lot more. I don't know if I have the perfect answer. I think I have a lot of it. But God does make it clear all of a sudden. But God is still there, I found out. The sun still rises tomorrow morning. God's way of life still works. The big major prophecies that only this church understands are still occurring. And so we have to have our mind on the big stuff and not well on the little stuff that we don't yet understand, but we will understand in due time. Be patient. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives liberally and without reproach, and it will be given him, but let him ask in faith. You see, here again comes faith. You've got to have faith. Let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed to the wind, for let not that man suppose he'll receive anything from God, a double-minded man. You're back and forth and back and forth, and you can't make up your mind. We had a woman driving ahead of us coming to church, and she kept going back and forth, and we weren't sure where she's going to turn, and then she'd shoot out ahead of us and here and there. And uh, she finally got out of her way, because I'm not always patient. She always should be patient. <laughs> Cheryl was afraid I was going to run her down. <laughs> but anyway, uh, some people are like that, back and forth and back and forth. But it says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith, your faith will be tested. It produces patience. And we will gradually grow in patience in many areas of our lives and hopefully all areas eventually, even driving on the freeway. <laughs> Let's turn now to Luke 17. Luke chapter 17 at this point. Let's begin in verse 1. Jesus said, It is impossible that no offenses should come. He said, Yes, there are going to be offenses. People are going to hurt your feelings. They're going to do bad things, and you'll get mad at them. But woe to him whom, through whom they come. People that turn on you and stab you in the back, as has happened to me a number of times, and to some of you and other types of ways, they hurt us. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. 
and that he should uh, and that he should offend one of these little ones, particularly a little one. Uh, shouldn't worry about it quite as much with me or some of us who've been around for a while, but especially the little ones. You shouldn't offend them. Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, and not just if he sins, but if he starts trying to make eyes and make remarks to your wife, if he borrows money from you and never pays it back, if he sideswaps your car in the parking lot and never offers to get it fixed, you know, on your fender's crush is going to cost $739 or something. If he does this and that, all kinds of things you can imagine. If he sins against you, rebuke him. See, if he's not trying to make it right. And if he repents, forgive him. Say, well, John, you came and crushed my fender here. And, and you know, I, I expect you and you know to help out or whatever he's done. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. And brethren, we ought to say, I'm sorry. I repent more often to one another in the church, by the way. Sometimes we don't do that so the other person doesn't feel like forgiving because the first person never really says, I'm sorry. I really mean it. I'm really sorry. I'll try never to do it again, which is repentance. doesn't mean you'll be perfect, but you'll try not to do it again. And you, if you mean that and he sees that, they should bring, on, bring about forgiveness. And the apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. Why did he say that there? Why did they say that there? Because it takes faith to know that God's way of life works. If you believe there is a real God and that this is going to work for good, you will forgive your brother 70 times 7. Not just 7 times, but 70 times 7, which is a figure of speech even then because my wife has probably had to forgive me over 70 times 7 as we've lived together 26 and a half years. And we all have to forgive each other in our marriage hundreds of times, I suppose, over little things. Most of the time we don't even think about it that much, but we just immediately forgive each other. I know a few days ago I was got careless and came up close to her for something. Maybe it's even coming up for a good reason, wanted to hug her or something, but I stepped on her foot, hurt her toe. <laughs> and I said, I'm sorry, and well... And then she kind of went like that, but then she forgave me because she never brought it up, never held it against me, and probably even forgot about it. It was, what, four or five days ago or a week, I don't know. But, you know, we hurt each other. We don't mean to. You, have forgive, you forgive each other. That's part of marriage, and that's part of Christianity. You forgive each other over and over and over again. You've got to have faith that that will work. You've got to have faith that God will help you do that and that God will bless you if you do that. And you've got to understand that if you do not forgive your brother, then Christ will not forgive you. That's another impetus, of course, to help you forgive the other. So anyway, Jesus then said, if you have faith, the apostle said, increase our faith. If you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and planted in the sea and it would obey you. He didn't really explain how it increased their faith at that point, but he shows uh, how little faith you need to have. Real faith. But the trouble is, a lot of us have hope. <laughs> we don't have faith. We have hope. And we need to have more faith, like that poor man that came to Jesus to heal his child. And he says, if, if you believe. And the man cried out, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. 
You know, he, you just hear him saying plaintively, please help my unbelief. I want to believe. I can't really believe as I should. Help my unbelief. And that's the way we are a lot of times in this very faithless age. In Romans 10, verse 17, and again, I've used this many times, but I don't want to leave this out today. It's not my main subject, but Romans 10, 17 God says through Paul, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing the Word of God. If you read into this Bible, and as I've explained John 6 verse 57 so many times, which tells us to feed on Christ and shows that this Word, these words are spirit and they are life. We're to feed on these words. We're to drink any of these words in the Bible. We're to read them over and over. We're to meditate on them, think about them, pray about them, internalize them, consciously try to go out and do it. Then as we do it, we see it works. And then that increases our faith. You want to build your biceps, you young men, get a barbell or dumbbell and you keep doing this, you know, your curls or your chins and so on. And you tear down so many muscles here and pretty soon it'll almost split right out. You see, mine's about to pop out of the uh, the uh, thing here. I'm kidding. <laughs> it doesn't work. Once I passed about age 60, it doesn't work as well as it used to. But anyway, you if you do that, you can increase the size and, and hardness of your biceps because you're using, you're exercising the muscle. Same thing about faith. You need to exercise the muscle of faith, so to speak. Use it or lose it, as they say about other things. But that principle is true. They tell the story about Dwight L. Moody, the famous Protestant evangelist who obviously had normal Protestant errors, but it was an interesting comment in Halley's Pikett Bible handbook. He said, I prayed and prayed for faith, and faith never seemed to come. He said, finally, I, I, I quit. I picked up the Bible and started to read and read the Bible. And then faith came powerfully. <laughs> and that's true. You start drinking into the Bible and letting God talk to you and think about these examples, see what God has done, reason about it, meditate on it, and you will grow in faith. Faith comes by hearing the Word of God. Faith will come through my sermon today to you. Faith then will come by you reading the Bible on your own, of course, even more, because you can do that so much more. If you will, spend a lot more time reading the Bible through the week than you just hear hearing my sermon today. Drink into the Bible. Try to drink in of it 30, 45 minutes or an hour a day. That's up to you. We're not commanding you to do this. Oh, you can't make us do it. We don't. We're not trying to make anybody do anything. But it's good to study about 30 minutes or more a day unless something's wrong with you, and therefore you're feeding on Christ a lot more. If you can do more than that, uh, that's good. You'll increase faith because God's mind will become your mind. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, and beginning here, verse 5. Here he's talking about you are kept by the power of God through faith uh, for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. So you're kept by the power of God through faith. Faith helps you keep on trusting God. In this you greatly rejoice, the salvation, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. You know, you may have lost your job. Maybe your husband or wife argued with you or threatened to leave you or you're sick or Mr. McNair died, or someone else died that you love, or some other terrible thing happened, and you're really hurt by that. 
you're grieved by various trials, and these trials do come, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, this is precious in God's sight, to see that in spite of trials and tests, you will hang in there. And I've said so many times, God does not want a whole bunch of Lucifers in His kingdom. Lucifer had all this beauty, all this wisdom, all this power, magnetic personality, all of that. He did not want him because Lucifer was treacherous, was not trustworthy and turned aside to fight God. And God is testing you and testing you and testing me and testing me day by day and year by year to see will we really obey him right down to our toenails. Will we obey God? even when the going gets tough. Think about it, brethren. He wants to know that. That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. And fire is used in the Bible as a fiery trial, a test of persecutions and so on, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation the word revelation means the revealing, the revealing of Christ when He comes again as King of kings, whom having not seen, you love. How do you love Him? You love Him by faith. I'd like to see Him. I'd like to hear His voice in person. So would you. But that may not happen for a while. Though now you do not see Him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end, the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Because you're walking by faith. You'll trust God. And the genuineness of your faith will be shown to God as you hang in there and even grow and increase in faith, increase in love, increase in wisdom, increase in humility, increase in dedication to God through the years. Not perfectly. I've never done it perfectly. But overall, you grow. And God knows your attitude. And He's checking your attitude and mine. Brethren, I've been tested again and again, and I'm not trying to brag about it because I have not passed all the tests as I should have. But just to help you understand, that's the only reason I bring these things up. Mr. Armstrong talked a great deal about his life, and he's not here to do that anymore. So some of us can do that once in a while to help you. I did have a terrible uh, test, in a sense, when Dick Armstrong died. I talked Mr. Armstrong to going right into Turner Stevens' mortuary, and Dick was still on the slab, and we laid hands on Dick at my insistence, frankly, and asked God to raise him from the dead. And God did not do that. And years later, Mr. Armstrong said, Well, Rod, my, my heart was probably not in as much as it should, but I just didn't think it was God's time when we did that. And uh, he sensed that, but still, he didn't want to say, We won't do it. It was his son, and he loved him so dearly. And then at the funeral, I kept looking up at uh, Mount Wilson, because the uh, Mountain View Cemetery, as those of us in Pasadena remember, was right below the mountains, and it was a partially clear day, and we could look up, and I was sort of looking up and thinking somehow, you know, my strength coming from the hills or something, and I thought maybe God's going to intervene and raise Dick even now. And I prayed, standing right there, that God would do that. And I meant it. I was a young, young person, and I had a more youthful zeal, I hadn't suffered as much to learn, maybe a lack of wisdom, but I asked God to do that. He did not do that. Years later, I came to realize if God had done that, it would have put us on the front page of the Los Angeles Times and New York Times and all over because many of the top doctors in San Maria, Santa Maria, 
and later down in the UCLA Medical Center, one of the top institutions on the West, on the West Coast, knew that Dick was absolutely crushed. His whole body had been crushed, and he died. They knew he was dead. The mortuary knew he was dead. There's no question about that. Young man raised from the dead, Herbert Armstrong, maybe his picture. Would that have been good? Well, it would have been good if Christ were supposed to come in the next five or six years or something, but Christ was not coming that soon and didn't want that kind of notice or notoriety, bang, right, zeroing in on all of us and everybody hating us and being jealous all at once. It wasn't God's time. Also, we weren't quite ready for that spiritually as I look back, and I don't want to describe that. But a lot of people had a lot of attitudes then and later fell away. I'm not talking about Mr. Armstrong, of course, others. And maybe that wasn't good to honor the church to that extent and focus till we got more cleaned up and ready for those things. Later on, my wife, Margie, died in 76. And I thought, just like the world had come to an end, I just didn't know. And I, I, I knew better in one way, and yet it hurt me so much. And I had many thoughts, you know. But each time after Dick's death, and Margie's death, I would go back and review and review the foundations. Then later, in the right after working myself sort of into a faint twice, as my wife knows, I fainted during those times of the receivership, trying my best to hold the church together for Mr. Armstrong with all my heart and taking calls from all over the world. I was sent into exile courtesy of Lord Darth Vader. And he influenced Mr. Armstrong wrongly, and that took place. And I was off there on an island. You can think, oh, that's a wonderful place to be. Well, in a way, it was better than the North Pole. It certainly was. But I'm not a beach person. I basically get skin cancer and, and or would get it if I was out there all the time. And little things have to be plucked off. And I don't like to be in the sun. I'd much rather been in the mountains and so on. And so every Sunday, my wife and me and little Rebecca would circle in the car circle the island of Oahu just to have something to do. During the week, I just tried to study and pray and meditate and fast and write articles I knew would probably never be used, but I was thinking. Some of them were partly used later when we got global started. <laughs> I had some ideas. But anyway, I tried to, you know, use the time and so on. But anyway, it was hard. I had to thank God I'm out here and they're back there. They're plotting against me. My daughter Elizabeth had my first grandchild and it hurt her because I was not able to be there. All those things were happening. And I knew they were trying to get me during that time. I don't want to go into the stories reflecting on anyone, but some of the men at Pasadena were trying to get me and get me out of the church. Very, very clearly. Not just out of the ministry, out of the church. And I mean that. I know and know that I know that. Okay? I had to say, God, you're in heaven Mr. Armstrong is your servant. It's all going to work out. And I had to pray and beseech God. And near the end, I got right down on my face. And not only on my knees, but somehow got right down on the rug. And best begged God. I said, please intervene. And once I began to do that and fasted twice a month, rather than once a month, as was my habit, I began to fast even more and cry out to God. Suddenly, this letter comes from Mr. Armstrong Airmail, special delivery, return receipt requested. And it said, come on back and you're to teach such and such and such and such. And we got back to Pasadena. And one of the leading ladies who did not understand what was going on fully, 
she came right up to Cheryl the very day after we arrived one afternoon and Cheryl was there on the campus and she said, oh, Cheryl, I heard just whatever a little while ago, a few minutes or something, you were back. She said, my husband didn't know you were back and, and Mr. Dukat, didn't know you were coming back and some others she named. And we thought, yeah, Mr. Armstrong didn't tell them he was bringing me back so they wouldn't block me off, you see. I thought that was interesting. And uh, he, had, he, he knew he was maneuvering. And then during those months that followed, as I talked to him, I would find he knew that some of the phones were being tapped and we had to be careful. And finally, he took care of the problem by getting rid of certain individuals in the way that they intended to get rid of me. And they left forever. They left forever and never came back. That's what they wanted to happen to me. He that digs a pit will fall into it. And the Bible repeats that two or three times. He that digs a pit will fall into it. And that's what happened to them. And I can name two or three individuals, not just one, but it happened to them. And they are gone. So anyway, God takes care of things. But I went back and I thought, God, I know you're there. And I went back about the Bible. This is your word. And I went over and over. Now, how did I know that? Well, again, I'd go back to the basics. I think I know it's your word, first of all, by prophecy. Because our church understands so many big things that just cannot be explained any other way. About the growth of the United States being given all the Seagates, United States and Britain. And now, as Mr. Armstrong said, and I heard him thunder at the British people in 1954 in person when I was with him. He says, if you don't wake up and repent, God's going to start taking these Seagates away. He said that up in Belfast and some of these other places about August 1954. And about two years later, two years and two months, maybe October 1956, my wife and I were sent over there. And that very winter, Suez was taken away. The first Seagate fell. And one after the other after the other of them fell. Then in the 1970s and 80s, he began to talk about he knew the Eastern European nations had to be part of the beast ultimately to make up the ten and the way it would happen. And so they had to break free. He says, I know that once the Russian boot is planted somewhere, they never move. They had hundreds of thousands of troops and tens of thousands of tanks. No one thought it had changed for hundreds of years. But no, all of a sudden, as you know, and the winter of 1989-1990, just one after the other after the other of these nations began to break free. And suddenly we saw the Berlin Wall come down and all the rest. Dramatic. It all began to happen, as he had said. So many other things. I thought about things like that during those months in Hawaii. I thought about the way of life. And I realized that every time and everyone that I had known that followed God's way of life were blessed to the degree they followed that way of life. I have to put it that way because some would follow it in this area and they were definitely blessed in this area, but then they didn't follow it in their marriage or they didn't follow it in their child rearing or they didn't follow it in some other area. They were not blessed in that area where they didn't follow it. But to the degree that we follow God's way of life, we are blessed. And God's way of life works. And I've seen it now for over 50 years, brethren. And I've been tested. I'll be tested again. My tests are not over. But I've seen it work. 
And then I went, of course, and answered prayer. And I remembered the lady, which I've told you about, not to cite all of them and where are you out here, but Burke McNairn, I think it was, and I were on the tour in 52, somewhere, I believe, in Kansas. I've got this old baptizing book. I could look it up. And this lady came to us, a farm lady, and we baptized her. She had her Baptist friend with her who was not being called, not interested, but just a friend to meet these strange young men from Mr. Armstrong's college. She didn't want to go out with some other men. Maybe their husband said, don't go and meet these men. Have someone with you. I don't know. But she had her lady friend with her. And here's these two young boys. We were just 20. I was 22, and I guess Burke was 20, 20 and a half or 21. Anyway, we met her and baptized her, laid hands on her, and she was very sound-minded. She didn't say, oh, any, any, no Pentecostal stuff, whatever. But just as we were leaving, starting to leave, she said, fellas, she said, I think I should tell you something that might encourage you. She held out her arms. She was wearing a sleeveless blouse. And she said, last winter, I think she said February, January, February, whenever it was, she said, I, this arm, she held out, she said, this arm hung like a rope. It was about one-fourth the normal size, just hang like a rope. It had never developed, never grown out all her life. And I sent to Mr. Armstrong for an anointed cloth, and here it is. <laughs> and we had a hard time telling the difference, but she said, you'll notice that this arm, the one that was healed, is a little smaller than the other arm. And she says, I thought about that, and she said, I came to realize, she said, now I can milk with both, both hands, she was a farm woman. She milked cows. She said, God is letting me develop the muscles in both arms. He didn't develop the muscles. He's letting me do that. And when she said that, tears came to my eyes. I thought, wow, that's interesting. Somehow that part hit me, made it more real. And so me, being from Missouri, I said to this Baptist lady, or Church of Christ, or whatever she was, I always check up, you know, I said, well, I said, now you've known Mrs. Jones, whatever her name was, for all you, she said, she or her childhood friend, she said, yes, you saw this arm hanging there for years? Oh, yeah, all her life, it just hung like that. We were friends anyhow. And you saw it now grown right out. And she said, yes, it sure has. She looked very solemn and, you know, kind of a special look in her eyes. She didn't say, I'm going to be converted and join your church. I don't know if she ever did, but it really impressed her. She knew it happened. She knew it happened. I have seen things like that over and over. And in desperate moments, when I'm all alone and I'm being tested, and my faith is being tested, I think on those things. And I hope you will too. There are various degrees of faith, various stages of faith. And you've got to let your faith grow. You've got to prove and prove and reprove Forward and backward and sideways, there is a real God that this book is inspired of God. And once you do that, you can see that the Bible says the name of the church is the church of God 12 times. 12 times in the New Testament. That God says you're to keep His Sabbath. The seventh day is a sign. He says you're to keep His holy days. And He shows you in Zechariah 14, they'll even be observed after Christ returns to this earth. He says a whole bunch of things, as you know in the Bible, that set us apart from all other churches. And that's something to be very thankful for. You can prove and reprove those things and know what you believe and why. So we've got to do that, my brethren. 
one of the great men of God of all time was David, king of Israel. He's called a man after God's own heart. He was a man after God's own heart because he loved God's law. He said, it's my meditation all the day because he had great zeal. We know that too because of all the other things he did. But another thing, if you read the Psalms, and I won't read a hundred of them, I could, <laughs> but just read them and get this in mind. Let's start in Psalm 7 here a little bit. Here's another aspect of David's character. One of the major things, when you understand it, that makes David a man after God's own heart, and he may be your boss a few years from now. He's going to be the king over all Israel, all 12 tribes. Psalm 7. No, I'm sorry, Psalm 5. Let's start there in verse 11. He says, but let all those rejoice who put their trust. See, do you put your trust in God in the way you handle your health? Do you put your trust in God in the way you handle your money? Do you put your trust in God in the way you handle your marriage? Do you put your trust in God in every single phase and facet of your life? David did overall. He wasn't perfect. He slipped a couple times. But he only slipped once, big time. Let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. Let those also who love your name be joyful in you, for you, eternal, will bless the righteous with favor. You will surround him as with a shield. So God blessed David very much. Now you might say, well, Carl Manair died though. Yes, David died too. Mr. Armstrong lived to be 93 years old, and 3,000 years ago, how old was David? Only 70. But God blessed and blessed and blessed him. So that doesn't mean he lets all of us live to be 80 or 90. Let's get our priorities straight. We don't always understand if the people are cut off a little earlier or a little later, the reason why. And we must not give up faith on anything like that, because we don't know those answers. God does. But David was a wonderful man, and yet David didn't even live near as long as Mr. Armstrong lived nearly 3,000 years later. So we've got to understand, David was blessed, though, during those years. Wonderful, exciting life, and saw God's power and God's blessing again and again. Psalm 7, O eternal my God, in you I put my trust. Here it is again. It's a matter of trust. Will you put your trust in God? Save me from those who persecute me and deliver me, lest they tear me like a lion, rending me in pieces while there is none delivered. And, of course, he goes on and on through the whole of the Psalms about how he put his trust in God and how we ought to as well. Frankly, that type of phrase is repeated dozens or hundreds of times through the Psalms. And I was reading more of them just this morning. Turn now, if you would, to Second Timothy. Second Timothy, brethren, if you would. Second Timothy, chapter 4. And I'm going to begin reading here in verse 5. Paul was at the end of his life. Here was a great servant of God, one of the greatest of all times. He labored more abundantly than all the apostles. Tremendous individual. He says in verse 6, or verse uh, 6 here, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. He didn't say, God, you've got to keep me living now another 10 or 15 years. 
I don't think that thought ever crossed Paul's mind. And Paul, from all indications, brethren, was not as old as I am. He probably was the age of Mr. Carl McNair or a year or two younger. And I mean that if you understand, you know, he was about Jesus' age and probably died around 66 or 68 A.D. at the latest. So he was about that same age. I'm ready, he said. And I know Carl Manier said that too, by the way. I didn't mean to bring this in and get sentimental about it, but he did. When I talked to him, he said, well, he says, my life is in God's hands, Rod. He told me he had bone cancer, and he says, he knows what's best. I remember those two phrases. My life's in God's hands, and he knows what's best. And he does. And we've got to live by faith, and we've got to die by faith. I have fought a good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Yes, you keep the faith to the end of your days and God will bless and bless and bless you through the rest of eternity if you'll do that, brethren. You don't get eternal life in this flesh, but you will get eternal life as a spirit being in the family of God. Finally, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me uh, at that time or at that day. You see, when He returns... And not only to me, but also to all those who have loved His appearance. Yes, we've got to love His appearance. We've got to look for it. We've got to say, come quickly, Lord Jesus, and walk and live by faith. So that we can say at the end of our days, I have kept the faith. I have put my faith and trust in the real God and the ultimate authority whom I have proved is the ultimate authority. That's where my faith is. And my faith, with God's help, will not waver. Let's aim for that.